my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus Christ. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Hey, how you doing this weekend? Good, hey, it's great to be with you. I'm uh, Jeff. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Seacoast. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us from one of our other campuses or maybe you're in one of the venues, the chapel. I want to say hi to you guys and especially want to say hey to those of you up in Greensboro. I got a chance to hop on the city this week and see some of the uh, uh, renovations that you guys have been doing up there. So great job and uh, Brett and Carrie and everybody up in Greensboro. We're going to continue. In fact, we're going to finish the series that we're calling Proclaim and we're going through the book, continuing through the book of Acts. And in the last few chapters, and including this chapter, basically it's been kind of a travelogue. It's kind of a, a, a record of one of Paul's, or several of Paul's uh, mission trips that he took. And I love following along with Paul the different cities that he's going to because I love to travel. In fact, over the last few years, I've had an amazing privilege of being able to travel to Asia, to Europe, to Africa. And when I travel, what I love to do is go see old cathedrals. I just have uh, a love for old architecture, and especially cathedrals. And I thought uh, today I'd kind of share with you a couple of the cathedrals that I've seen, and it kind of dovetails into what we're going to talk about. So let, let me show you a couple of them. The grandest cathedral that I've seen is in uh, Paris, Notre Dame. And an amazing thing about Notre Dame, inside they have the whole gospel is in pictures. And what's cool about that is as you think back when Notre Dame was built, most of the people were illiterate. None of them had Bibles. And so when they would go to church, they would learn the story of Jesus just by looking at the pictures on the wall. Um, One of the most unique cathedrals I've seen is on Red Square in Moscow. I saw it about a month ago. It's St. Basil's and the the architecture is amazing there. Now, when this picture was taken, it was about uh, zero degrees outside. So this was a very quick picture and let's move on. But a unique cathedral there. Um, One of the uh, wildest cathedrals I've seen is called Sagrada Familia. And Sagrada Familia is in Barcelona. And it was designed by an architect named Gaudi. Now, Gaudi was, uh, the height of his career was back from about 1880 to about 1920. And he, a lot of his other structures, his houses and stuff, had a lot of mushrooms involved. And when you see Sagrada Familia, you realize he was probably smoking some of those mushrooms while he was drawing this cathedral. Nothing, none of the walls are straight. It's, it's kind of crazy. But I got to tell you, the creepiest cathedral I've ever seen, I want to, I, sometimes I get the name wrong, Capella dos Osos. Capella dos Osos is in Faro, Portugal. Before I show you the picture, any idea what Capella dos Osos might mean? That's right, Chapel of Bones. It is a cathedral made entirely out of old monk bones. Yeah, they wanted people to get face-to-face that, that eventually everyone's going to die, so they made a church out of bones. How many of you would like to attend that church? A little, little bit creepy. My favorite cathedral in the whole world, though, that I've seen, and I've been there three times, is St. Paul's Cathedral, and it's in London. Um, it's uh, one of the largest dome cathedrals in the world. It's up on a hill. When you stand at the cathedral, you can see all of the old city of London. You can see all the way down to the River Thames. Um, inside uh, the dome, up around the top, 10 stories above the floor, there's a circle where you can stand and look down. It's called the Whispering Gallery. Now, I have a fear of heights and claustrophobia, and to get up to the Whispering Gallery, you have to climb these little bitty 
stairs from the 1600s and then you look down over this 10 stories straight down. It took me, <laughs> it took me three visits to the cathedral before I made it up there. But it's an amazing experience. It was designed by Christopher Wren. In 1666, the Great London Fire, uh, all of the old city of London was burned, in, in fact, in, including most of the churches. And Christopher Wren was um, commissioned to design 50 new churches. And his piece de resistance, his, his ultimate piece was was St. Paul's Cathedral. And, and uh, Christopher Wren was a very committed uh, worshiper of God. And this cathedral was his act of worship. In fact, he was a very old man before it was completed. And they say at the end, toward the end of the, of, of the building, you can see, uh, you saw in the picture, the big dome, he would be hoisted up every week in just a little bucket by a pulley and a rope. They'd hoist him to the very top of that dome so he could look out and make sure that everything was being done exactly Right. And it was a uh, in the 1600s and 1700s, this cathedral was a place of of worship and adoration and people would just come and be in awe of God. But if you go to St. Paul's today, what you're going to find, although it is still a functioning church, it's a very, very small congregation, mostly what it is as a museum. You pay to go in and and you have uh, a guided audio tours and you walk around. In fact, last time I was there outside, up against the cathedral walls on the outside, they were having a carnival. And some of the rides had lewd pictures of women. And, and, and there was absolutely no reverence, no respect, no feel of a church at all. And the question I had is, how does that happen? How does a building or a congregation go from being this vibrant, God-worshipping, life-changing experience to become a shell? to become a museum to what it used to be. Have you ever experienced that? Maybe, you've, maybe you know a church like that. Maybe you know a church that at one time, it was, a, it was a church that was growing, that was reaching lives, that people were seeing their lives changed. And, and now maybe the church is just an empty shell, maybe a small congregation just holding on to the end. Or, or maybe you've seen it in a friendship. Maybe a long time ago, you guys were BFFs, and, and, and now you maybe once in a while contact each other at Christmas. I was on Facebook this week, and, and uh, I came across a guy that was my roommate in college. In fact, he was the best man at my wedding. And as I kind of looked through his Facebook page and through his pictures, I realized it's been years since we've had any contact at all. How does that happen to a relationship? Maybe you've seen it in a marriage. You know, a marriage that, that when it began, they were so much in love, and they loved being together, and they had fun, and, and just... Uh, uh, enjoyed each other's company, and now, months, years later, it just seems like it's grown cold and grown stale. Maybe, maybe it's even your own marriage. And, and how does that happen? How do, how do things go from being alive and vibrant to being empty and dead? Well, today we're going to take a look as we finish the Proclaim series at Acts chapter 19. And then we're going to look at some other scripture as well, because I think in the Bible, we get a very clear picture of what can happen in a relationship, in a church, in a marriage, and then how that can be recovered. So before we dive into Acts 19, would you pray with me? I would appreciate it. Father, thank you for the opportunity to share today. What, a, what an amazing experience it is just to speak from your word. Lord, I pray today that, uh, pray that you will speak through me. I pray that my words will be your words. Lord, I pray that you will illuminate... Um, your word just to reflect who we can be in you. Lord, we just dedicate the next few minutes to you. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not going to read the entire uh, 
19th chapter of Acts. It's, it's pretty long, but I really encourage you to go home this afternoon and read through this chapter because it's, it's one of the wildest chapters in the Bible. All kinds of stuff happens. I'll, I'll just kind of give you the highlights real quick. Um, Paul, in the last chapter, he was in Corinth. And we talked about that in the last, uh, when we were talking uh, in, in the last part of Proclaim. Corinth was kind of a wild experience. Paul's kind of run out of town and he comes to the town of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus in Paul's time was the second most important city in the whole Roman Empire. Only Rome was larger. Ephesus uh, had a huge port. It was a major trade center. But what it was best known for was worship of the Greek goddess Artemis. And they had built a temple to the goddess Artemis that was about 425,000 square feet. To kind of get a feel for that, if you've ever seen pictures of the Parthenon in Athens, they could put 16 Parthenons inside this temple. It was uh, about eight times the size of the White House. So this was a huge, huge temple, and people would come from all over the world. And so Paul naturally went to Ephesus as he was going to the major cities of, of Asia. And when he arrives in Ephesus, he, he meets some, some guys that were disciples of John and, and he kind of teaches them more about Jesus. And, and then as he always did, he went into the synagogue and he began to teach in the synagogue. Well, Paul doesn't have a good history in synagogues. He gets in trouble. But in Ephesus, he makes a record. He's there for three months. That's the longest time he ever lasted in a synagogue. Finally, some of the guys started arguing with him, and they were having big fights uh, when, when Paul would teach. And so Paul left the synagogue, and he, he kind of moved next door and rented a hall, and he began to teach. And he would teach for five hours a day. People would come and listen to him teach, and people began to commit their lives to Christ. They began to see leaders become Christians, and, and, and a church began to form. In fact, this uh, God, uh, I'm sorry, the scripture says that God begins to do amazing things through Paul. Sick people are coming, and Paul's laying his hands on them, and they're being healed. People who are possessed with demons are coming, and Paul's praying for them, and demons are, 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 are leaving. In fact, it, it's so wild. This is the only time this happened in the Bible. We can't, I can't explain it. It's just God was doing whatever he wanted to do. People would come, and they'd bring handkerchiefs, and Paul would lay his hands on them, and then they would take these handkerchiefs, and they would put them on sick people, and sick people would get well. The Bible didn't say, that's what you ought to do, go do that. It was just something God did at Ephesus. He was, he was up to something big. Well, news got out that Paul was doing this stuff. And in Ephesus, in this culture, they love this kind of stuff. They were into magic. They were into exorcism. They had these guys that would just travel around and do exorcisms. In fact, it says in Acts 19 that there is a, high, a priest, a Jewish priest named Sceva, and he had seven sons. And these seven sons were part of this traveling exorcist band. And they heard about Paul casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And they said, cool, let's try that. So they found a demon-possessed guy. And they went to his house. And they, they gathered around him. And they said, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, we command this demon to get out. The demon, <laughs> talking through this guy, looks at him and says, and he says, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who the heck are you? I added one word, but demons would say that. You know what I'm saying? That's exactly what they were saying. And then what happens next is almost comical. In fact, it is comical. This guy, this demon-possessed guy, jumps on these seven sons of Sceva and puts a whooping on them. I mean, just puts a whooping on them. In fact, they run out of the house naked and bleeding. Let me tell you something. A church service has gone horribly wrong when the preacher runs out naked and bleeding. All right? That's what's going on. 
Now, look what happens as a result of this. This story gets out really quickly, and I don't think this is on your outline sheet, but it says in uh, verse 17 of Acts 19, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And listen to this. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus is greatly extolled. I mean, this church begins to explode. Everyone in Ephesus hears what's going on. People start coming from other parts of Asia to see what's happening. And as I said, Ephesus was a major center for magic and, 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 and people would study magic and there were a lot of libraries, magic books that were exchanged. And look what happens. People began to give their life to Christ and they began to think, wow, I, I don't think the magic and Christianity really fit together. And it says in verse 18, And also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Now, it's interesting. This isn't a command to burn books, okay? This was a one-time event that happened in Ephesus, and it was a spontaneous thing. But, But look at what happened. It says that it burned them all. And they counted the value of the books and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. 50,000 pieces of silver. In today's economy, that's $5 million. These people brought $5 million worth of books and burned them. This church was literally in fuego. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they're on fire. That's a pun. It's kind of, see, they had this book burning and... Never mind. <laughs> as as my, my daughter tells me, if it's, if it's funny, they'll get it. You don't have to explain it. So sorry about that. <laughs> Paul stays in Ephesus after this for three years, and he establishes this church. And during this time, during this three years, trouble arises. A guy named Demetrius is a silversmith, and he doesn't like what's going on because he sees as people are becoming Christians, it's starting to mess with the economy it says in verse uh, 25th of the cha- uh, 25 of the chapter, Demetrius gets together some other silversmiths. And he says, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, the business of making these, these silver gods. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, and she whom all Asia and the world worship. He's saying, guys, this is messing with our livelihood, not only our church, but our livelihood. People, as people become Christians, they don't want to buy these little silver gods anymore. And, and tourists may stop coming to the city if, if the temple of Artemis is, is uh, diminished. And so they, 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 they kind of move out into the streets and they, they start a protest. And they start shouting. And as people hear the commotion, more people come out. and They don't even know what's going on. And eventually they all kind of move into the amphitheater that's in one part of the town where they have their public meetings. And people hear, hey, there's a riot down at the amphitheater. So crowds start pouring in from everywhere. And these silversmiths start chanting. They start chanting, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. Well, the Christians think, hey, that sounds great. We'll get into it. So they start chanting, we've got spirit. Yes, we do. We've got the Holy Spirit. How about you? Well, great is Artemis. Over here, real confused people start saying, left field stinks, left field stinks. And it's just pandemonium. And people don't even know what they're fighting over. And pretty soon someone punches someone. Somebody else punches someone. And, and now it's just, it's a melee. And Paul hears about this. And Paul says, awesome, I want to go. It's a big crowd. It's a great chance to tell them about Jesus. 
Now, Paul was good at a lot of stuff, but putting down riots wasn't really his deal. You know what I'm saying? He was good at pouring gasoline on a fire. And so some of his friends talked him into Paul. Why don't you just hang tight for a minute? Let's see what happens. And the, the town clerk gets up. He's kind of like the mayor. And he gives a speech. Don't you know that it, it, there's nothing like a speech from a politician to put down a good riot? You know what I'm saying? And he says, guys, we're going to get in trouble here. The Romans aren't going to like this. If you've got a problem with the Christians, sue them in court. Don't do your deal, but let's just disperse. And so, so they dispersed. And Paul stayed a little bit longer. And, and then he, he took his right-hand man, Timothy, and he made him pastor of this church. And Paul moved on. And, and through the rest of the New Testament, you'll see that the Ephesian church mentioned again and again and again. Tradition tells us that after Timothy was, was pastor of this church, then Jesus' disciple John came and he became the pastor of the church at Ephesus. In fact, some tradition says that Mary, Jesus' mother, eventually moved to Ephesus and attended this church. In fact, the church at Ephesus became the center of Christianity. It began in Jerusalem and then kind of moved to Antioch. And then eventually it became Ephesus that was the, cent- the center of, of, of the whole of all of Christianity. So that's kind of what we talked about at first. How, what happened to this church? Where is this church now? If you go to Ephesus, there's no church there. There's no congregation. Uh, very few Christians, if any. In fact, it's just a tourist spot, basically. What, where, how, where did the demise of this church start? How did it happen? Well, fortunately, the New, the New Testament gives us a bit of a clue. Because 30 years later, after John had pastored the church at Ephesus, he's arrested and he's exiled on the Isle of Patmos. And while he's on this island by himself, he has a vision, and the visions of Jesus. And, and he, he writes down what Jesus says. He writes it down in the book of Revelation. And one of the things that Jesus says, he says, give a message to the seven churches of Asia. Now, when he said that, Ephesus was the center of these seven churches of, of Asia, the chief church. And he says, I have a message for the church at Ephesus. So we'll, we'll take a look at that. And it kind of gives us a clue of what happened to that church. Jesus said, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary." Notice what Jesus commends this church at Ephesus for. He commends them for their toil, for their works, for their patient endurance, for their tireless work for the kingdom. You know what he's saying? He's saying, you guys, you guys are doing church really well. You have great life groups. Um, you have an awesome youth ministry. Your, your children's ministry is so creative that Walt Disney wants to come and learn from you guys. I mean, you guys are really doing a good job at church. But he says there's a fatal flaw. And this is in the fourth verse. Jesus says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. He said, you're doing all the right things. You're working hard. You're, you're staying pure. You're doing community transformation projects. You're sticking to your commitment. But guys, there's no passion. There's no emotion. It's just going through the motions. They had abandoned. That Greek word means to walk away, to leave. They had walked away from the love that they had at first, the passionate love that they had had for Jesus, the, the passionate desire they had had to see lost people come to know Jesus. They had left that first love. 
It's kind of a comparison to an empty marriage, a marriage that from the outside looks really strong. It's a stable relationship and hardworking people, people who are doing all the right things for their kids. They're showing up at the soccer games and they're helping them with the homework. But inside the home, inside the relationship, there's no passion. There's no depth to the relationship. There's conversations are surface and never get down to what's really going on. And they're really just roommates living separate lives. They've abandoned the love they had at first. When you look back at that relationship, you have to ask yourself, how does, how does that happen? Well, we have to remember what first love is like. I mean, do you guys remember first love? Do you remember the first time you were in love or maybe if you're married when you very first got together? I remember when Sherry and I very first got to know each other and we started dating and I started writing her the worst poems you've ever read in your life. Sadly, they've all been lost and destroyed so you'll never get to read any of them, but it was just this, this first love. I remember we went to a banquet together and, and we were sitting at the table and we were waiting for the food to come and I, I looked over at this beautiful young lady that had agreed to come to this banquet with me and overwhelmed with emotion, I just kind of reached over and I grabbed her hand with my left hand and I held her hand and she held mine and I squeezed hers and she squeezed mine and I squeezed again and she said, ouch. And so I, yeah, I eased up a little bit, you know. And then they brought the food and laid it out and I had a problem. I'm left-handed. In fact, my uh, fork in my right hand is a, is a weapon of mass destruction. You know, I just, it ain't happening. And I looked at that food and I thought about that hand and I looked at the food and I thought about the hand and I decided I was more in love than I was hungry. So I didn't eat any food that night, just nibbled on a roll, you know. That's what first love is like. You're looking at me, you know what it is. You were that couple that wore the matching shirts, weren't you? Yeah, you were that one. You remember, you know what it's like with the first time on Facebook when you change your status from it's complicated to in a relationship, you know? When you go and you watch chick flicks together and you don't even sigh, you know what I'm saying? That feeling of first love. What happens to that? What causes us to leave the love we have at, had at first? You know, as I've thought about this, there's two or three things I thought about. There's, one is just this idea of conquest. This idea of, okay, I, I've, I've done the dating and the courtship and now I'm married. I, I kind of a, a little bit of a get her done kind of philosophy. You know, we're married now. Now I move on to my next conquest. And we can do that in Christianity too. We, we, we hear about Jesus. We commit our life to Christ. We do the Christian thing. Now we're Christians. We do the church thing. We do, maybe I even do the life group thing, but that's really not the major focus of our lives because we've kind of done that deal. We've done the God thing. Another, another thing that happens to first love is just distractions. I mean, once we get married, once we commit our life to Christ, other things kind of crowd in, don't they? I mean, we've got to go to work and work gets complicated and we get a promotion and we lose our job and, and all of those distractions. And then a baby is born and then another baby is born and then another baby's born. And life just takes on this level of complexity that it didn't used to have. And without meaning to, we can walk away from the love that we had at first. And sometimes it's just weariness. We just get tired. I heard about this old guy. He's out fishing by himself on a pond. And while he's fishing, he hears a voice. And the voice says, pick me up. He looks around. He doesn't see anybody around him. And again, he hears this voice. It says, pick me up. So he looks and he looks. And next to the boat, there's a lily pad with a frog sitting on it. 
He says, looks down at the frog. He says, did, did you say something? The frog says, pick me up. So he does. He reaches over and he picks up the frog. The frog says, listen, if you'll kiss me, I'll turn into the most beautiful woman you've ever seen and I'll marry you. The old man looks at the frog. And he slips the frog in his pocket. The frog says, hey, 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 did you hear me? He says, if you kiss me, I'll turn into the most beautiful woman in the world and I'll marry you. The old guy says, you know, at my age, I'd rather have a talking frog. (laughs) That's old guy humor. (laughs) We just get tired, you know, it just becomes too much work. Where has this happened to you in your life? Where have you walked away from or abandoned first love? Maybe it's in a friendship. Maybe it's someone you used to be really, really close to, but you've allowed life to just kind of separate you. Maybe it's in marriage. You never meant to. You never meant to separate, to to drift apart. But, you know, through the months and the years, you've just step by step walked away from first love. Maybe it's in your commitment to Christ. You know, you remember when you first came into Seacoast, you, you would cry through the worship every week. And now you find yourself just critiquing the musicians. I mean, you used to get up every day and, and, and think about who you could tell about Jesus. And you were so excited. You told everyone you knew. And now it just doesn't seem to come up in conversation. When was the last time that you just wept as you thought about the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for you? We've become comfortable, haven't we? We've become complacent. We've become cold in our relationship with Jesus. How do we get back? How do we get back to that place of first love? Well, Jesus gives the church at Ephesus some very clear instructions. In verse uh, 5 of chapter 2 of Revelation, Jesus says this, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus gives them three, three very solid instructions. First, he says, remember. He says, remember where you used to be. Remember from where you have fallen. Man, there's, there's just power in that. And just remember what it was like to first fall in love. You know what I love to do is I love to take out the old pictures. And Sherry and I just go through them together and we laugh about the hairstyles and we laugh about the clothes. And, and then we kind of just remember all the, we, we, we tell each other the old stories. And we've got 33 years of material to draw from. So there's a lot there, you know, but we just kind of tell each other those stories, even though we know how they turn out. And we, we revisit the old haunts and visit the old, the old places that we, we used to go. You know, remember what it was like when you first committed your life to Christ. I mean, you couldn't rate, wait to read the Bible in the morning. You saw God everywhere. I mean, you, you got your toast and you saw Jesus in your toast. And that was a little weird, but, but it was just exciting because you were excited. And, and remember those things. Remember the overwhelming thankfulness that you had, that God chose you, that Jesus died for you. You know, pull out your old Bible and look through the notes that you scribbled in the margin. Go, go find the old note sheets that you used to keep. Call, call an old mentor, an old Sunday school teacher or a pastor and just kind of reminisce with them about what it was like at the first. Jesus says, remember. And then the second thing he does is he says, repent. Repent for abandoning your first love. Repent for walking away 
How have you walked away from love? In a relationship, in a marriage with Jesus, how have, what have you done that, that, that has been walking away? Own your own things. Maybe you've allowed busyness or maybe you've allowed weariness or maybe you've allowed complacency to lead you away from the love that you've had at first. And then repent to those that you've abandoned. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a spouse. You just go to them and say, I'm sorry. And you know, there's some relationships you can't restore. I mean, I understand that, but you can always repent. And the one we need to repent most to is to God. You say, God, I'm so sorry that I have become tired and complacent and cold in my relationship with you. And then the last thing that Jesus says is he says, do the works you did at first. He says, redo. Remember, repent, redo. What did you do at first? When love was young, when you were very first together, what did you do at first? Do it again. You know, it'd be a great time to ask your wife out on a date. Get a babysitter and just ask her out on a date. Maybe, maybe, maybe take her to one of these awful chick flicks that are out, you know? And, and stay awake during the whole movie. I mean, that would be cool. And, and like, don't even pull your Blackberry out one time. Maybe forget to take your Blackberry. What if the kids need to get a hold of us? What if they do? You know what I'm saying? I mean, back when we were young people, there were no cell phones. Sorry about that. That was old guy memory again. Maybe, you know, maybe it'd be cool if you'd cook your husband a, you know, a home-cooked meal, send the kids out, have them cook a little romantic meal, and, you know, burn the chicken just a little bit for old time's sake, you know? It'd just be cool. <laughs> What'd you do when you were closest to Jesus? Do those things again. Maybe you went to a bunch of Bible studies. Maybe you should do that. Maybe you read your Bible every single day. Maybe you should do that. Maybe you told everybody, maybe in the checkout line at the grocery store, when the cashier said, how you doing? You said, man, Jesus is just doing so much in my life. Maybe you start doing that stuff again. You say, well, I, I, I don't have those same emotions. I don't, I don't feel the same way. Well, you guys know that you can't live life by what you feel. Sometimes you have to act your way into a feeling. You know, if you want to know, see an illustration of how this works, how many of you would like to be depressed this week? I mean, you just really, depression sounds like a lot of fun. You don't want to do that. But if you'll act depressed, if you'll lay in bed all day, if you'll pull the blinds down, if you'll eat too much or too little or watch too much TV all week long, no matter how you feel, at the end of the week, how are you going to feel? You're going to feel depressed. The same thing is true of first love. If you'll begin acting like you are desperately in love with Jesus, if you'll begin acting like you love your spouse and, and your, your deep friendship, eventually those feelings can follow. But we act before we feel. I want to finish, though, with a bottom line question. Because we started with cathedrals in Europe and we talked about how they're empty and cold. We talked about a church in Ephesus that doesn't exist anymore. The last question I want to ask you is, how long before Seacoast is an empty museum? How long until we're just sitting around telling each other stories about how it used to be? Remember when? How long until Seacoast abandons our first love? You see, when Seacoast was young, when it was early, people did crazy things. When they first started this church, people sold their houses and moved to Mount Pleasant 
just because they wanted to be a part of starting this new church. They got the phone numbers of 16,000 people and they called all of them right about dinner time. And they asked them about whether or not they would like to come to a new church. Was that a good idea? Probably not. But they were so passionate about what was going on. They would do anything to reach people. Early on, Seacoast rented an elementary school and during a service one Sunday, a fire alarm went off. And somebody got up in the attic and they disconnected the wires to the fire alarm. That is a federal offense. You can go to prison for a long time for that. Not a good idea. But why did they do that? Because they were so concerned that someone brought someone with them to hear about Jesus and they might miss it. And after I, when I would speak earlier at Seacoast, I've been here for 14 years. Someone would see me out in the lobby and they would say, are you speaking this weekend? And I'd say, yeah. They'd pull me aside. and they would, I, I don't know how many times I had this conversation. They'd pull me aside and they say, see that guy over there? Yeah, that's my neighbor. I've been praying for him. I've been asking him to come. And he finally came this weekend. He's far from Jesus. And they'd look me in the eye and they'd say, don't mess this up. <laughs> Gang, that's who we are. That's who Seacoast is. We're the place you bring those lost friends and relatives so they can hear about Jesus. We're the place that you're so nervous on Sunday morning because you're sitting next to somebody that you know if they don't hear this message and accept it, they're facing a a lifetime and eternity without Jesus. And every Sunday there's suspense about who is going to commit their life to Christ. And that's who we were. But now, I don't know. I mean, we're real successful. We have 13 campuses. We have, a, we have a house church watching right now on the Isle of Crete. We have another one in San Diego, another one in Maine. We have campuses in North Carolina and Georgia and South Carolina. We have over 11,000 people this weekend that are gathering at a seacoast. We've been recognized across the country in magazines. We get invited to speak all over the world to talk about what God's doing at seacoast. And we've got nice buildings and we have, we have great locations and awesome leaders but are we still just passionate about Jesus Christ? Would we do anything, anything to see our neighbor commit their life to Christ? Do we have a hard time going to sleep at night because we know that our relatives just don't know about Jesus and we've got to find a way to get the message across. We've got to tell them because we're so in love with Jesus He's changed our lives so much that we can't imagine someone living a life without him. Or are we worried that the music is not exactly what we wanted to hear and the message is a little long and it's been a while since we've heard Greg and, you know, I, yeah, I'm all about the lost people, but really I'm not getting fed. And Are we becoming that church? Are we? How long? until we're an empty cathedral. Let me pray with you. Lord, you said, you told the church at Ephesus to repent. Lord, I repent. I'm sorry. I'm sorry in my own personal life. I'm sorry that um, I take so much for granted. I'm sorry... um, the days, weeks go by that I don't even think about lost people. I'm sorry that I allow my prayers to become cold and empty and that my Bible reading just becomes a chore to get through. I'm sorry. 
Lord, I want to get back to that passionate, tumultuous love relationship. Lord, I repent as a church. I repent of our success. I repent of our comfort. I repent of our our fame. If it is anything but about loving Jesus and loving people. Lord, I just pray you'll make us so passionate for you. And Lord, I pray today, not only for our relationship with you, but I pray for our relationship with others. Lord, there are those here whose hearts break when they hear about first love because in their marriage, in their relationships, it's cold and it's empty. Lord, I pray that you'll encourage them. Lord, I pray that they will know that that flame can be fanned, that those embers can be brought back to life as they follow you and follow what what you've asked us to do. Lord, we have hope in you because we know you haven't given up on us. We know that you still walk with us. And Lord, we look forward to what you're going to do tomorrow and do in the future. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.